0: Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and Alanco Animal Health. And today's guest is and has been one of Australia's leading agribusiness leaders. He's had more titles than I can count, so I'll simply say, David Grumby. welcome. Yeah, hi Kerry, how are you? David, I was about to run through some notes, some of your titles and achievements, and no doubt we'll get to some of them uh, during this talk today, but in the file of your life... Are you particularly proudest of some uh, single event or achievement?
1: Oh, no single event. I think, um, I mean, basically, I, I, haven't really, I haven't really had a life plan, but um, I've, I've, followed, I've followed areas that interest me where I think I can create some value.
0: Okay, let's go back to the beginning and go run through all this value Did you talk about. Born in Brisbane, I'm told you never knew your father, is that correct?
1: No, I, I was I was actually born in Sydney, um, but my my father my father was uh, my father was in the air force. He, he served overseas for most of the war. He came back to Australia after uh, having a, having well, he he earned a DSO and a DFC as a as a pilot, and uh, came back to Australia as a uh, as flying instructor at Williamtown and was killed in an accident uh, several months after the end of the war. So. I was about, I was about fourteen months old, and uh, never knew him. Wow, a tough start so your mum raises you in brisbane yeah my, my mother my mother left Sydney and came back to Warwick and lived with her widowed father, who was a doctor in warwick right and, uh, and my father 's parents, my grandparents my paternal grandparents were on a property outside Warwick, so I was raised in Warwick and sent away to boarding school and you 've still
0: got a connection to warwick i 'll we'll get back to that later, but uh so your mum yes. raises you, uh, and is, Was there any connection to the to the land or agriculture at that time?
1: Oh, certainly. I mean, my my paternal grandparents had had a property out. They were down from Longreach. They had a property at uh, had a property outside Warwick, and I spent a lot of time out there with them.
0: Now, school at Churchy and then to the University of Queensland, and you were more than a handy rugby player. Tell us about your <laughs> rugby career in the early days, at
1: least. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed rugby and uh, I played at the university club and um, I played to Queensland and went, went to New Zealand with the Wallabies, but uh, no, that was um, my, my primary activity, my secondary activity was getting a degree, but uh, sometimes those two collided. So in
0: rugby, tell, tell us about some of your well-known state and uh, teammates then, and perhaps those
1: who even played for the Wallabies. Yeah, we were look. We were very, we were a very fortunate university club. I mean, our club captain was was Dick Marks and uh, Jules Gerasimov and Dick tended to sort of uh, switch roles, but they were they were they were club captains, and I was lucky to play with some very good players. When Richard Trivett, who I was at school with, who, who became a Wallaby and uh, and and my business partner, and and a, and a number of others. I mean, there were Bruce Brown and. Uh, uh, Ross Tartzel, and uh, there, there were just a number of a number of very good players at the university club, and we were, were a pretty successful club at the time, which was which was enjoyable. The interstate
0: games was the New South Wales Queensland rivalry there then as it is today.
1: It was it was red hot, red hot, and the okay. and the and the, the rivalry was stuck by by Peter Crittle, who uh, <laughs> who was. It? A very well known New South Wales player. She's just, just inducted into put, the Hall of Fame, I see, as well. Yeah, he, he put he put the argument forward that they should discontinue the Interstate series because Queensland wasn't good enough. <laughs> well that that certainly fired us up.
0: So you never made it to the Australian team, probably a New South Wales plotter who stopped you from
1: being a wallaby in that hooker position. Yeah, yeah. I mean Peter Johnson was the incumbent and he was a very well established and, and a, a wonderful player. Um, I went to New Zealand with the Wallabies uh, for the Jubilee Test at Wellington, and uh, but uh, reserves couldn't run on in those days, very unlike
0: today. So of course, there were amateur days. So you uh, you're armed with an economics degree. You joined up with one of the biggest names in Australian agribusiness, Sir William
1: Gunn. That would have been in your early twenties, I assume. Yes, Gary. Um, yes, yeah, so, uh, I. I mean, in those days, there were there are plenty of jobs available, and. Um, I was very fortunate. Sir William offered me an opportunity to join him and his management activities in Northern Australia. And um, I, I, I joined up with, the, with a number of other young guys, including Richard Trivett and Ian Lewis and a number of others. But, yeah, we... Uh, and young Bill Gunn. Yeah, we, we were very fortunate to be connected with Sir William. He was larger than life. He had, he had wonderful contacts and, uh, and gave us all a terrific opportunity.
0: So I've heard Sir William come called a flawed genius. Uh, how did you regard him and what did you learn about agribusiness from Sir William? <laughs> there
1: are a lot of descriptions of Sir William. He was a fearless borrower. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he, was the, he was an eternal optimist, uh, a, a, a wonderful character, not,
0: not a great businessman. I thought he was always more of a, a, a farmer than a, uh, than a grazier, but he did do big things in just about across the board in agribusiness, didn't he?
1: Yes, he did, I and mean, he, he, had, he had big interests around, around Gundawindi family properties that he'd developed, but also he, he managed a number of properties and, owned, and had interests in them in, the, in northern Australia. He had a, had a very strong, sort of long vision about northern Australia and the potential. He saw high rainfall, uh, low-cost land, and proximity to Asia, and um, he, he had a real dream to, to capture the benefits, and I think when here we are 50 years later, uh, I've some of those benefits start to flow through. Absolutely. You obviously had great foresight, but
0: you and uh, some colleagues eventually decide to start your own company. Tell us about that uh, that event and the, the, what happened there. Yeah, well,
1: Sir William, we three of us, uh, John Down, Richard Trevitt and I, um, were sort of on, on Sir William's team as a management group and we, we bought when Sir, Sir William went down uh, financially and we bought the management company and uh, for a while we operated in Australia, but we saw a real opportunity in taking agricultural technology overseas, working with the World Bank and development organisations. So we, 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 took our, we took our business offshore and, um, and, and worked with a number of institutions overseas in developing agriculture. It was uh, a fairly bold venture. We were all pretty young. And um, it was pretty exciting stuff. But, uh, you know, in the days of the beef crash in, in the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of work around
0: here. No, those days were—it must have been appalling. But so your energies in the world of agriculture overseas, but you must have uh, had some connection here in Australia. What did you concentrate on, livestock or
1: um, or farming or what? What was the, the initial focus? Yeah, well, initially overseas it was livestock, uh, but also we retained we retained our interest in Northern Australia. We we ended up we, well we bought properties in Northern Australia and we set up a live exporting business. Basically, really looked at integrated supply chains out of Northern Australia into Asia. So we had a fairly really busy development phase there. Yeah, it was pretty exciting stuff.
0: You would have been one of the first to get into that live trade out of the North, along with uh, Doug Taggart and a couple of others that. Uh, heavy days, the start of that, and the, the prospects always looked fascinatingly, didn't they? They, they? they looked to be terrific right from the start.
1: Yeah, I mean there was the, the fundamental business platform. I guess was low cost production in Australia, um, short haul transportation into Asia, low cost feeding and processing in Asia, and delivery into local markets in Asia. So, I mean, it was a it was a compelling compelling story. And, um, and it worked, but there were a few adventures on the way because um, the infrastructure and the whole sort of surroundings to that industry were not well-developed. We had to do a lot of it ourselves.
0: I know, and deal- dealing with Asian buyers and Asian governments would have been an experience in a half, I guess. There there were some interesting moments, Gary, yeah. <laughs> Which <laughs> can't be published <laughs> at yet. Now, uh, you're a busy young man, wife, family, and a successful business to run. When and why did you decide to enter the sometimes slippery world of agri-politics?
1: Well, I mean, fast fast forward there, our management company expanded and developed and we, uh, we got beyond agriculture. We were looking at actually working as project managers, which meant that the, the technical disciplines weren't all that important. We, we got into, into health projects, into rural, rural development uh, type projects. So uh, GRM was the company and um, basically, it expanded, and it expanded to the point where we really needed new capital, and we we sold an interest, we sold the company to Kerry Packer, and um, I, I stayed on with Kerry Packer for a period, uh, and and that was that was exciting in itself, a period of great expansion, but when we moved when we moved away from or when Kerry passed away, um, I I then looked at. I looked at our industry, and I just thought there were a lot of things that needed to be done, particularly the beef industry. Uh, I had a I had a feeling that we weren't being rewarded at the farm gate sufficiently, that the market opportunities were very substantial, but that there were impediments in the supply chain that we really needed to address as an industry. Amazing. So I took an interest. I took an interest in industry events, and you
0: were involved in the. The early days of a couple of heady projects. Of- uh, you must have entered there just about the time the the old Australian Meat and Livestock Corporation became Meat and Livestock Australia, or just before that, maybe?
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the minister of the day, John Anderson, um, had, had embarked on a restructure of the old AMLC and the Meat Research Corporation, and um, was setting up a new company, and they uh, appointed a new board. I was on that board. I... I became I became the chairman of that board, and really we we looked at re, the restructure of the industry and the restructure of the indus, of services to the industry, and it really divided into two areas, which was really marketing marketing of our rec mates yes. and also providing services and R and D support to the industry.
0: Time for a break and a message from our chief sponsor, Elenco
1: Animal Health. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral Patriot and Silence Insecticidal Ear Tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Elanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Elanco and find out how you can win the buffalo fly battle now.
0: You're back on the grill with Kerry Lonergan and our special guest, David Crombie. David, you plunge headfirst into agripolitics. politics You are appointed as the chair of a steering committee charged with introducing MSA, Meat Standards Australia, another world first to classify meat at a certain level of
1: quality. Oh, the, 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 the predecessor to, the, to um, MSA was uh, eating quality assurance yeah. and um, that, that, had, that had its origins uh, in the feedlot industry, interestingly. Rod Poggenhorn and Diesel Cameron and others. I went on to the um, advisory committee, and there was a, an advisory committee representing all of the industry, which was producers and processors and agents and um, and retailers. So it was all, everybody around the table trying to work out what we could do because the, the background story was that beef consumption was, was falling, um, and when we and when we surveyed our our, uh, our customers. Uh, we found that what they were telling us was that beef was inconsistent. One day you'd buy a piece of beef and the next day you'd go back into the same butcher shop, same butcher, same price, same cut, and it wouldn't eat well. So obviously when a a meal decision came up, if it was an important meal, you'd you'd, you'd go to something that was more consistent. So the the criticism of our industry was that the product wasn't good enough and we thought, well, how how do we manage that? So that, that really went into a program, and the program emerged as Meat Standards Australia, and uh, that was within Meat and Livestock Australia. And the the MSA program, I think, it's just been it's been a, a story in itself. And and the challenge was a big one. I mean, you know, can consumers tell the difference? And and the big challenge was, can we produce product to meet their expectation? Well, we we based everything on consumer tests. We did over a million consumer tests, and what we found was that, yes, consumers can tell the difference, and, yes, we can produce the product to meet those expectations, but it means everybody in the supply chain has got to change what they do because um, everybody was doing what they liked doing with no regard at all for the customer. So what this involved was a much bigger issue, and it was the issue that I really took on at, at, at MLA and that was really turning the industry around to face the customer. For too long, we'd produced what we'd like producing and we'd forgotten about the customer. So we had to change the entire... And this goes through all of Australian agriculture, probably all business, but certainly all of Australian agriculture. We need to understand what our customer wants and produce it. And um, basically, that's what MSA was about. And um, I guess the proof is in the pudding today. I mean, over over half of the turn-off of Australia is MSA so graded now. David, you're making, it sound,
0: you're making it sound easier, but I know there was a lot of opposition. It was widespread and strong. What, what are your mem- memories about that
1: opposition? <laughs> I've got a lot of memories and a lot of scars, Kerry. <laughs> um, oh, look, hum- human nature is people don't want to change what they do. So you've got northern producers who produce Brahman cattle for all of the reasons. And um, the... The, the concern, I mean, the concern was that um, basically, what we found in the research was that um, under that, under those management systems, there was not a consistent product coming out of it. I mean, it didn't come down to breeds; it didn't come down to feeding systems. There were there were good performers right across the board. What we had to do was find pathways that worked consistently. So the Pathway Program under Rod Paulknhorn was the focus of the MSA program. And we got a lot of people's noses out of joint. Because the, the processes, they, they knew they knew the business and uh, they weren't going to change. Tender stretching, no, it occupies too much space in the freezer. I mean, dog dogs in yards, um, mixing cattle in sale yards, there were all sorts of things that all diminished the eating quality potential of every animal and we just had to sort through all of that and create pathways, we could be sure that the product would be consistent when it came out the other end. And, and look, as I said, there were lots of people got their noses out of joint. It was, um, it was a, 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 pretty, a pretty challenging process, but uh, we, had, we had to stick with it because we knew it'd and know, it would work. has.
0: I know at one stage, uh, David, uh, Woolies almost signed up and refused to have a sticker on their meat which would be the same as the sticker on the meat at Coles. Is that how it happened or yes.
1: something like that? Yeah, well, this was part of it. I mean, we had, we had all the big retailers around the table. Well, none of them spoke because they didn't want to give away any secrets to the others. <laughs> and, um, and all of them came to us independently and said, we'll use the MSA sticker in the NSA process, provided you don't give it to them. Well, you know, it was, a, it was an industry process and an industry program and funded by industry. And so there's no way we could give anybody a, 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 a free ride on that. It had to be right across industry. So yeah, it was it was difficult. And I mean, you know, difficult in I mean, restaurateurs and, and um, I mean menus. You know, how do you, how do you describe how you want the cut? You have somebody who says, "I like it medium rare." Well, what does medium rare look like to a to a, a, a waiter at the table, and how does he transmit that message through to the chef? And how does the chef cook it on a, on a stovetop that's got variable temperatures with meat that's variable thicknesses? Everything was predicated against delivering consistent quality. So we had to have standards right through the supply chain. Everybody had to be accountable to the customer. And um, yeah, that was a, that was a seismic shift for industry.
0: And you had to sell that story, I know, from where I was sitting back then. You went public almost in your position deliberately wearing this uh, big hat to publicise and promote the healthy aspects of red meat. Did you see that as a mission that went hand-in-hand hand with the, the MSA programme?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this was... I mean, you, you asked earlier why uh, why I got involved in industry affairs. Well, this to me was... Uh, I mean, MSA really brought it all together. It was turning the industry round to face the customer and respond to what the customer wanted. That was the only way we could stay in business. It was the only way we could capture capture uh, beneficial pricing.
0: Now, you moved on. You uh, became chairman of the National Farmers Federation. That is a big gig. That's uh, really big picture stuff. Again, you were much more out there than previous incumbents of that position. That This time you were selling all of Australian agriculture.
1: Yeah, well, it was. it was not my intention to become the president of the National Farmers Federation. I was approached... At the end of Peter Corrish's term, uh, I was approached to throw my hat in the ring. There were still some things I I thought were necessary because what we'd done in the beef industry, I felt was necessary for all of Australian agriculture. We had to raise the profile of agriculture. We had to look at better market access. Uh, We had to look at a whole range of things at the national level. To me, it was a logical follow-on to try and sort of improve, improve the opportunities for Australian farmers was that Australian farmers you know, for too long have been price takers. We needed to actually have a have a much better engagement in the supply chain uh, and a much better engagement with with the government because that's where decisions are made on some of the major things that affect us. I mean, work practices, market access, biosecurity. You know, they're, they're all issues that affect farmers daily. So I felt it was a logical follow-on and uh, when I was approached the try had in the ring, I... I decided to I remember you expressing a lot of frustration
0: to me about trade talks you went to Doha trade talks the Cairns group etc cetera, etc cetera. this must have been very frustrating for you when you went to those talks and the same countries were putting in the same objections and refusing to move on and free up agricultural trade Yeah
1: it, it, it's a challenge I mean you know when you when you look at it we have a we have a different mindset in Australia in a, in Australia, we basically encourage businesses uh, to to get on with their business and um, if the business if the business goes bad and if it's a rural business if the business goes bad, then they go broke and they get cast aside if you like. Uh, a lot of other countries have a have a different attitude I mean the French for instance they, they see an enormous value in their agriculture it really presents their country as a tourist destination and an interesting place to be so they basically supported their farmers not by providing a, a, a social security net, but by providing subsidies through the pricing of yeah, their products, which kept them in business and, and kept them doing what they did. And I mean, there's a lot of debate about which is the better system. To me, the best system is allowing farmers to get on with the job and giving them, giving them a, an opportunity to have a crack at being successful and, uh, and taking the impediments out of, out of the trade story. You know, you, you talk to people in Britain who are on the uh, on the uh, on, on the on the Common Agricultural Project uh, under, the, under the Common Agricultural Policy, and really the majority of them say, "Look, we'd much rather just operate commercially."
0: Yes, I, I think the people Australians would be amazed at the the volume and uh, of subsidies available to farmers in Europe, and also in the United States, and also in most other countries compared to what Australians get now. I'm, I'm moving on to trade. I've just appointed you as a special trade commissioner to negotiate to solve the China imbroglio, David. Just uh, do that at the weekend if you can. How do you start?
1: Yep, I'll be happy to take that on.
0: (laughs) Seriously, how do you start fixing this? Is it wait and see or do we have a a massive picture to unwind and start again on or is it uh, it now unfixable?
1: Oh, look, it's it's very complicated. I mean, it's so often that politics and policy collide and I I found I found that in Canberra. I mean, it isn't good policy doesn't always get up if it uh if it crosses across politics. And uh, I think the whole China trade thing is um is all about politics. I think that you know, China China I think would be would would be very happy to import anything from Australia and they do. Uh, the big difference is that they 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 really they desperately need iron ore, so there's no problem there. Uh they can get by without beef. Yes,
0: it's it's odd, isn't it? The the China and broglio and the big sufferers are the farmers and graziers of Australia. Uh, another deal where regional and rural Australia are suffering. The zero carbon emissions target—it's a huge burden for uh, for farmers and graziers. Any sage advice yeah, but, for for this uh, for the road ahead? Yeah,
1: look, it's. A, I mean, Australian farmers have been carrying have been carrying the can for for Australia's pronouncements at, at all of these world forums. I mean, we're we're bragging about the fact that we've managed our carbon better than anybody else. Well, who's done it? It's been Australian farmers. They've carried the load. Uh, to me, to me, the, the whole climate change debate, it's just created a, an enormous divide in our community between the believers and the deniers. And um, I just think a much better debate would be talking about the fact that climate is changing. Climate is always changing. Everybody would agree to that. So, I mean, my feeling would be why, why don't we centre the debate on on the extent to which it's changing? Uh, are there anthropogenic causes? Uh, is there anything we can do about it? Uh, and is there anything we can do about it that, that fairly spreads across the entire community? I just think that we've we've become far too sort of centralised on on the on the on the divide between the believers and the deniers, and. Um, Really, it's, it's resulted in very unfair outcomes, particularly for our farming sector. We live in interesting times, David.
0: The final question, tough one. Can Australia beat the All Blacks this year?
1: <laughs> uh, my answer to that is yes. Uh, we always can beat them, uh, but we don't often do it.
0: <laughs> David, uh, great to talk to you again. I'll see you at the rugby time sometime, I'm sure. Thank you for joining with me good. on The Grill with B-Central. Look forward to it, Kerry. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill brought to you by Beef Central and our podcast partner, Elenco Animal Health.